there. It's recording. I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband, nor child, nor hardly a friend through whom they can hurt me. My body, this lean carrion that still has to be washed and fed and have clothes hung about it daily with so many changes, they may kill as soon as they please. The succession is provided for. My crown passes to my nephew. Being, for all these reasons, free from fear, I will write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the god who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning, as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. But there is no judge between gods and men, and the god of the mountain will not answer me. Terrors and plagues are not an answer. I write in Greek as my old master taught it to me. It may someday happen that a traveler from the Greek lands will again lodge in this palace and read the book. Then he will talk of it among the Greeks, where there is great freedom of speech even about the gods themselves. Perhaps their wise men will know whether my complaint is right or whether the god could have defended himself if he had made an answer. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. C.S. Lewis wrote Till We Have Faces. Uh, the working title was Bareface, quickly, in collaboration with his wife, Joy Davidman, publishing it in 1956. But he had really been developing it for 35 years since his atheist undergraduate days. A reworking of the Cupid and Psyche myth from the point of view of one of Psyche's evil sisters, it had been written as an unfinished narrative poem. In these early versions, Oriol's anger at the gods is vindicated and the gods are proven to be unjust, but Lewis's Christianity and success as a writer of prose ultimately changed both the genre of the poem and its outcome. After publication, Lewis considered it his finest work. J.R.R. Tolkien agreed this time. The novel is notable for its interiority. Lewis explores the psychology of the Queen of Gloam from her childhood as an ugly princess until her death lifting up the veil just a bit to allow us to see her fate in the age to come. I'm Chris Pipkin, Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Georgia. With me, as always, to discuss Tilia Faces are my co-hosts, Megan Logston and Annika Smith. How are you all? Doing well. How are you? Can't complain. <laughs> really? <Gearing> up. <laughs> Do you yeah. not feel like Orwell sometimes? I, <laughs> I really, I really can't. Like, um, I mean, I, 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 read, have... I, the, uh, I'm making my complaint before him, before a judge. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I guess I can complain. Sorry. Um, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and maybe I'll write out my complaint as a really long book. Yeah. Uh, so Megan, when was the first time you read Till We Have Faces? I actually read Till We Have Faces. I was trying to figure out exactly when, but I can't narrow down a year. But um, I read Till We Have Faces after I had kind of already been pretty deep into C.S. Lewis's catalog. Um, so I was very familiar with Lewis. Um, and then coming to this book, it's it's so different from <laughs> basically everything else that he has written. Right. <laughs> so... Um, so I, I'm glad that I did have that kind of, that foundation in Lewis beforehand, um, because I think this one, this one stands out all the more because of it. Not that, I mean, the rest of what he wrote is, is great, brilliant, 
you know, and, and all of that. But um, this book in particular, I think really stuck with me. Um, not only because it has a female protagonist, <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's pretty clear that, that joy, that joy helped uh, influence this book um, because of the way it's, it's written. I think stylistically he draws a lot from her, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's when I first read it. I was already pretty familiar with Lewis probably around, if I had to guess around 2013, 14, so maybe about seven ish years ago, but yeah. Cool. How about you, Annika? Um, I first read it in high school and had a really immature reaction to it mm. um, in that I, I I missed a lot of the, the deeper points mm. um, as one does in high school. Um, but I also uh, just got excited that there was this um, really strong female character uh, that there were three sisters and I'm from a family of three sisters. And I read this and the first time I read it, I was like, Oh, I understand so-and-so so much better. <laughs> like I just projected the characters on, um, which is a totally unfair. And, and just to be clear, like no one in my family, uh, we, none of us resemble these three sisters, but I think we do tend to insert ourselves into fairy tales. Um, and I liked that Psyche was the the third born um, and that her mother was a third born. My mother was a third born. And sometimes you, and I'm the third born, you take these things into um, account in silly ways, but it was always kind of fun. Um, and then I reread it in college. I had a class on mythology and literature and we we studied the the Cupid and Psyche myth, and we read this. the The professor made the ties in with um, the Four Loves and um, C.S. Lewis's work, especially on sort of exposing the terror of Storge and and of affectionate love, which comes out so um, it's so subtle, but I think really powerful in this book. And um, mm. I'm in the rereading of it in college, I then was able to identify more and more with um, particularly going through hard things and feeling like Job complaining to God and Orwell complaining to God and, and that sort of posture of um, what if we don't really understand mm -hmm. our own lives um, and our own selves. And yeah, so um reread it uh just recently and was delighted um by how powerful it still is uh mm -hmm. that opening um is so stark and so as you say unlike anything else he he writes um and it's so it's so just spare yes um, and unromantic and uh steely and i i mm -hmm. love it for that because it it's able to show some really um I don't I find it more disarming than any of the other spells Lewis weaves I guess I would say there's definitely a, a subtlety to it that isn't present in his other fiction even um yeah again not that I still love his other fiction but it is right. it's just it's it's nice to see him kind of as you know this is obviously written very late in his life um or at least the finished product ended up being written very late in his life. And so just seeing that subtlety um, where I th this would be the book to give someone if, if they complain about Lewis being too <laughs> on the nose <laughs> about, about things, right. you know, you say, Hey, he wrote this too. You should try this out and then see what they say. But yeah, I, I really appreciate that subtlety that I think I probably wouldn't have appreciated as much as you say, if I had encountered it earlier in like, like high school or, or even if, if I had picked it up accidentally in middle, like middle or elementary school, as I did with the space <laughs> trilogy, by the way, oh. I, I tried to read out of the silent planet, probably in fourth grade. Um, <laughs> oh, because it was right next to the Narnia books in my church's library. And so I thought, oh, well, sure. Yeah, this, what? Mm -hmm. this is written by C.S. Lewis. And I love C.S. Lewis because he wrote Narnia. So I'm going to try to read this. I gave up after two chapters. I was like, I don't I don't understand anything that's happening right here. Little tricky. Little tricky. Right? Yeah. I was like, where mm -hmm. is Aslan? I just want <laughs> Aslan. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And there's no Aslan. No, in no this there's book. not. There's the God mm-hmm. of the Mountain. Um, mm. And it's uh, it doesn't work as an allegory mm-hmm. in the same way that the others can, even if they weren't written to be right. allegories. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I I completely agree with with what you all have been saying. This is this this is in competition with uh, the Brothers Karamazov uh, for being my favorite mm. novel, um, mm. and, and and possibly you know Lord of the Rings too. Um, but um, but but yeah, but it's so different from everything else Lewis has written. And maybe it would be worth you know later on in this discussion just just talking about Lewis as a kind of stylistic chameleon um because he he has his own sort of pet preoccupations but he doesn't seem to have like his style is just changing all the time um it's it's really uh yeah and it's and it's so different here like y'all were saying i mean it's such a it's such a good like modernist yes yes oh yeah just just so accomplished and and yeah i mean I, I haven't written anything. I sorry, I haven't read anything by Joy, um, uh, and I don't know if that's more the way her style was, or 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 why this shift in tone. But it's so interesting. I, I haven't read anything by Joy either, but um, from what I've read of uh, third party accounts, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's it's it is kind of. I, I think she her style did kind of have a little bit of an influence on him. Probably probably similar. I would think maybe to the way that Charles Williams influenced that hideous strength mm-hmm. um, to where it's not, it's not a carbon copy of, of Williams or joy, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, there's a distinctness to those works from say like Narnia or even the others in the space trilogy. Chris, you didn't answer the question of when you first. Oh yeah. Oh, no. When did you first read it? Yeah, it was yeah. in college. Um, I already knew I liked C.S. Lewis a lot. I'd read his, you know, Space Trilogy, the Narnia books, Screw Tape Letters, um, all of the, not all of the, a lot of his apologetic work. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just remember being so deeply struck by this in a, in a college class where, where we were actually introduced to this. This is also, I, I think the same college class where I was introduced to Charles Williams, um, you know, and uh, yeah, um, just, I, I remember loving it and, and just finding it so uh, beautiful and Lewisian, but also so distinct from anything he'd, he'd written. Um, it was such a just lovely surprise. Um um, and, and also being like thoroughly confused by the ending. Um, yes. So, uh, so, so that, that should be fun to talk about when we get to it. So this is based on the original. Um, it's based on a, on a later um, myth, um, not a Greek myth, but a Roman one um, that, that makes its first appearance in the golden ass by Apuleius um, Uh does anyone want to give like a quick recap of, um, you know, what happens in the original Cupid and Psyche myth? Don't piss Venus off. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And the that's, end. That's all y'all need to know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but hopefully people already knew that, right? Um, <laughs> One would hopefully. hope. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Cupid, the, the son of Venus, um, I like, and I'm, I'm far from the original uh, story, but what I think about is actually the, the metric song. Do you guys know the band metric? Um, Canadian indie rock. They had an album in 2009 called fantasies and a song called sick muse. And the opening lines were watch out Cupid stuck me with a sickness, pull your little arrows out. Let me live my life. Um, it's uh um, and mommy is a sick muse, pull your little arrows out. Um, but Cupid and Psyche, um, it's the monster falling in love with the, the soul. Um, but it's also the son of Venus um, disobeying his mother because he falls in love with, with Psyche. And then she um, is tricked by her sister I think in the original telling and sort of uh, Beauty and the Beast like uh, she trespasses um, she 
does what he tells her not to and, and has a lamp hidden that she lifts up when he comes to her because he's been coming to her in the dark, right? Right. Um, and then goes and is banished, but she sees him and he is actually glorious and beautiful, but she is banished from his presence and has to, to leave him out in um, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Was that roughly? Yeah, eventually in the in the um, in the story, um, they do get back together, um, and uh, and and there is a happy ending. But she has set several tasks by her vindictive would-be mother-in-law, um, ah. Venus, um, and and those are to, if I'm remembering right, um, to gather the fleece from man-eating golden sheep i think they're golden anyway to separate out like thousands of grains um which ants help her do and and with the sheep by the way she is uh uh, she waits for them to graze and then she gathers the wool from the brambles Um, and then the third task is to go down to the land of the dead and to bring back up to venus a casket of Proserpina's beauty uh, because Venus is like, I don't look as good as I used to do. I could sure use some of that beauty from the land of the dead. Um, and, so, uh, and so she brings it up, but at the last moment when she's anticipating, um, you know, being able to see her husband again, she kind of like takes a look at herself and she, She's like, well, I probably need to freshen up a little bit before I see him. So she opens the casket, which is kind of like a Pandora's box moment. And really Proserpina at Venus's behest has put sleep in there. So she just falls asleep. But there's this, um, there's this eucatastrophic turn actually here where um, I, I forget if it's Cupid or if it's someone else who just kind of appeals to Venus and says, Hey, I think this girl's been through enough. Why don't we bring her up to Olympus and make her a goddess and she can have like, you know, butterfly wings or something. And so, um, and so that's what happens. Um, and, uh, and she lives happily as a goddess, Psyche, the goddess of the soul, right. Um, uh, for, uh, uh, the rest of eternity. So it has a happy ending after all. It's a rare and Greek myth. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's Roman and it's written as well, a part of a much longer, weird, weird, weird novel um, <laughs> that, I have, that I have not read all of. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a story within a story within a story, basically, mm-hmm. in, a, in mm-hmm. a very long and weird novel that we don't need to talk about. Um, no. But um, let's talk about no. this novel instead because um, <laughs> it's better. Um, uh, it is Fair. um yeah but uh so so right off the bat uh, we, we have this uh sort of epigram love is too young to know what conscience is and i have no idea what that means do you all have any idea what it might mean you know i, I don't <laughs> i was i was really trying to think about it uh Unless it's, I don't know, you, I guess I just think about like young lovers not knowing anything about how the world actually works. It's, you just kind of get caught up in this mm-hmm. passionate feeling to the exclusion of, of all else, I, I guess. That would, that would be my best guess at, at maybe a beginning of, of where that, of what we're looking at here with this quote, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's very fair, especially the being the the caught upness of it. I mm-hmm. I thought about the the tyranny of love, like, like love the accompanying pride or the the idea that because I love, I therefore have um, power or I'm owed or have control. Mm-hmm. But like that, the relational dynamics that can go with that, and what we can do in the name of love. Mm-hmm. Um, without that's very true while thinking that we are completely justified um when in fact we are destroying or devouring even um Mm. those who are the beloved yeah i mean that's as good as any guess that i have maybe maybe it will become clear as we as we read through it um 
Um, I think, I think that's, yeah, those are, um, yeah, those are good. Or do you think, or do you think maybe this has just occurred to me? Um, because kind of, I guess one of the ideas of this novel is, is the idea of, uh, the gods and holiness not being what you would expect them to be. The epigram's kind of referencing sometimes we don't understand what love is or what it looks like. Um, we just assume that love must be this pleasant feeling where everything's always happy all of the time and nothing bad ever happens. Um, and like you said, Annika, kind of uh, doing doing things in the name of love is is almost the highest virtue. It's like, well, I'm doing this because I have this very strong, passionate feeling about either another person or about something, whatever it is. And so I'm just going to trample over whoever I need to, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. Or did your parents not ever tell you I, I'm punishing you because I love you? I'm oh, only yeah. doing this because I yeah. love you, right? <laughs> um but there are things we do and we say, well, I'm doing this because I love you. Yeah. Like, like, like to the beloved. Right. To, yeah. Right. The loving and the devouring are the same thing. Yeah. And trying to figure out what that difference is, I guess. Mm. And maybe there is no difference. <laughs> ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> this is very uncomfortable. I know. I- <laughs> <laughs> well, let's plunge into chapter one then. Uh- <laughs> Good job. All right. Uh, so, so it opens with this narration by Oriol, who's uh, who's an old woman now. She's the queen of Gloom, um, which is a tiny little backwater kingdom somewhere adjacent to ancient Greece, but we don't really know where. Um, she says she's writing this book in Greek to accuse the gods. Um, and then we get this really several chapters long flashback, right, to her to her upbringing. Actually, the flashback really lasts her whole you know, the whole book, but we're introduced to, um, country of gloam. Um, it's gods. Uh, who are, who are some of the gods in, in this book that are important to gloam and to the gloamians, gloamites, gloamers? Well, the, the chief is Ungit. Um, yes. and we, and I, I love like throughout this, it's all subtle because it's assumed that you would understand everything she's talking about um, and it's immersive. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, the prose is very modern there's none of like the, you read, um, I'm thinking of like the, the first English translations of Kristen Lovren's daughter that are super um, archaic and terrible um, because they have all these like fake medieval speech things. uh, Mm -hmm. And this is, this is very plain, um, but it grounds you with, with Greece, but then we're given this completely other name, other thing. And we learn later, uh, she has an aside that the fox says that Ungit, when she explains some of their practices to Ungit of the temple girls, the prostitutes, and the human sacrifice that is sometimes necessary, um, that the the fox, um, who we encounter a little later, shudders and says, oh, like this... Uh, you, it, it's more like the Babylonian <laughs> than, mm. than the Greek here. Um, more, more Ishtar, less straight up Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. And Unget has a son who's mm. the god of the mountain. We really don't know much about right now. Yeah, we, just know, the book. we just know that according to Oriol, he hates her. Yep. Uh, that's all we do. Yeah. yeah we'll yep. Find out, we'll find out more. So she's uh, kind of narrating, uh, um, talking about, you know, one of her earliest memories being the day that her mother died and when she first had her hair cut, mm-hmm. you know, and they would look at um, her sister Redival's hair falling on the, falling on the ground and saying, Oh, it's so pretty. It's like gold. It's such a shame. But they would look at her hair and they wouldn't really say anything. They had not said anything like that while I was being shorn. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. very unsentimental. I mean, even just like, I will begin my writing with the day my mother died and they cut off my hair. It's mm-hmm. really, her. the prose is also shorn of all ornaments. Like it's just. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it is very, it's just factual. He's just relaying yeah. information. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's relaying information, but there's also, it's really interesting what what 
the narration is doing here, right? right. Because it's giving us things that we need to know, but it's also taking into account, okay, what kind of a, what kind of a person would be mentioning those details? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds very detached and very factual, but there's like, there's this is rankling. a deep yeah. pain there still yeah. when she's an old woman. Um, so it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really amazing uh, how, you know, how many layers it kind of works on. Um, we're introduced mm-hmm. to, Bata, um, the, uh, is she the nurse? Is that, is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, and then the King, um, yes. King Trom, who we don't really hear that name again, um, for, for most of the rest of the book, I don't think, um, he's just referred to as the King. Um, and, uh, he's, you know, not, not the best dad, um, as, as seems to be the case with many Kings. Um, uh, and uh, the day that, um, you know, uh, they are first introduced to their tutor, the fox, um, and uh, how this is kind of, in some ways, Oriol's first friend um, that, she, mm. that she ever has. He's also much more than that. He's her foster father in a way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, she, she calls him grandfather later on. Um, but, uh, but who is the fox? He is a Greekling a slave that the king bought off of some traders and uh, the king immediately assigns him to tutor or, or to, well, he's eventually going to tutor the prince, you know, once, once a boy gets born into the household. But um, in the meantime, he gets to practice teaching on the, the daughters. Yeah. And so he does as one. Yes. Because as, as the king says, if a man can teach a girl, he can teach anything. <laughs> yeah. So he gets, uh, he gets assigned to be their tutor. And so he schools them in Greek and, um, you know, all sorts of Greek wisdom. So mm-hmm. was, yeah. so here's a question. Was he a stoic? Because in, <clears throat> in that first paragraph where we're introduced to him, we, we see that Orwell expected that he would be downcast as a slave who's far from his homeland and, and loved it. Um, mm. But I never heard him complain. And I never heard him boast about the great man he had been in his own country. He had all sorts of sayings to cheer himself up with. And then he quotes all these sort of aphorisms. No man can be in exile if he remembers that all the world is one city. Everything is as good or bad as our opinion makes it. And he, his very Greek... Or, or at least what Lewis is putting forward as the Greek point of view in this um, barbarian's tale, right? Of of how to of how to order your life and how to conceive of things like the afterlife and what's the best way to deal with a crisis. Um, I find is uh, very clever and also still subtle. Like it's not too on the nose of well, of course the fox represents. Um, reason and rationality. Yep. It's actually, we see three-dimensional characters here, um, mm-hmm. but we do get some some of that uh, influence coming in. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, I think that's right. I think, I think he is a stoic. It mentions other Greek, you know, thinkers later on in the book. And I assume he's referring to Plato, you know, who have, who have ideas about, you know, the afterlife being a real place the fox believes in the divine um but it's it, he means a very different thing mm-hmm. from what most of the people in globe do this was how i came to tell him all about unget about the girls who are kept in her house and the presents that brides have to make to her and how we sometimes in a bad year have to cut someone's throat and pour the blood over her. He shuddered when I said that and muttered something under his breath. But a moment later he said, Yes, she is undoubtedly Aphrodite, though more like the Babylonian than the Greek. But come, I'll tell you a tale of our Aphrodite. Then he deepened and lilted his voice and told how their Aphrodite once fell in love with the prince Anchises while he kept his father's sheep on the slopes of a mountain called Ida. And as she came down the grassy slopes towards his shepherd's hut, 
Lions and lynxes and bears and all sorts of beasts came about her fawning like dogs, and all went from her again in pairs to the delights of love. But she dimmed her glory and made herself like a mortal woman, and came to Anchises, guiled him, and they went up together into his bed. I think the fox had meant to end here, but the song now had him in its grip, and he went on to tell what followed, how Anchises woke from sleep and saw Aphrodite standing in the door of the hut, not now like a mortal, but with the glory. So he knew he had lain with a goddess, and he covered his eyes and shrieked, Kill me at once. Not that this ever really happened, the fox said in haste. It's only lies of poets, lies of poets, child, not in accordance with nature. But he had said enough to let me see that if the goddess was more beautiful in Greece than in Glome, she was equally terrible in each. It was always like that with the fox. He was ashamed of loving poetry, all folly, child. And I had to work much at my reading and writing and what he called philosophy in order to get a poem out of him. But thus, little by little, he taught me many. Virtue sought by man with travail and toil was the one he praised most. But I was never deceived by that. The real lilt came into his voice and the real brightness into his eyes when we were off into Take Me to the Apple-Laden Land or The Moon's Gone Down But Alone I Lie. He always sang that one very tenderly and as if he pitied me for something. He liked me better than Redival, who hated study and mocked and plagued him and set the other slaves on to play tricks on him. Yeah, I just I just love that passage, um, um, and I love how it you know besides besides just being gorgeous prose, um, um, it's uh, it, it highlights this kind of like even even at the beginning where she's she's found this new you know master who can actually lead her to some sort of clarity of philosophy and 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 understanding of the world that's not just you know about power you know, that mm-hmm. like, like her, like, like her father has. Right. Um, but even within his uh, logic and philosophy, there's such a contradiction between the head and the heart um, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, he, he really believes his philosophy and he's pressing her to follow it and to, and to live morally and to live logically you know and 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 you know he he's praising virtue sought by man with travail and toil which just sounds like a great (laughs) poem Uh, but you know obviously um uh he's it's it's the real poems that he that he loves the most and it's the Mm -hmm. fables and the myths and and the stories and he can't just kind of leave that part of himself behind even though he's you know, trying to push it down. You know what it reminds me of the um, pushing virtue sought by man with travail and toil is um, in the horse and his boy, um, the calamine, all all the aphorisms that they have and all their, their long, their poetry just being about virtues and obedience and submission but none, none of their the tales and excitement were for the northern barbarians, um, being the the Narnians and the Arkenlanders. Is that how you say it? I think so. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Write us at. <laughs> hey, what is that address? Write us at Inklings Variety Hour at gmail.com. There we go. Please do. It, it's yes. it's lonely over there. It is. It is. <laughs> Tell us how to pronounce all the things we're mispronouncing. Yes, that we're and that we're mispronouncing. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it's so funny because I I thought that was um, son of, of Lewis's maybe uh, racist attitudes <laughs> uh, the first time I read it, or or you know like it's um, and and here it is with coming out with the the greek like it's just his way of saying like there is a a misplaced value on on what we can call what we can utilize as wisdom um and philosophy versus the mystery of myth and poetry Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's a there's a value in beauty itself i think that's what's i think that's what he's drawing out here and the the tenderness towards that that the fox has and the pity he 
you get the child's, this is going over my head, but I'm sensing it in the reminiscence of the old woman. And again, it's the, how did this, this significance stayed with her um, throughout her life. The, the first chapter ends with a new stepmother, you know, and, and just as Bata had been telling him, oh, girls, your life's going to change now. You've got a new teacher. He's going to be whipping you. You know, it was actually great. Um, uh, you know, she's she's doing this again with this new stepmother, but the stepmother is barely more than a girl herself um, and is obviously very frightened. Chapter ends with uh, the, the end of the wedding, basically, with uh, with her very frightening father, right? Um, his was not a brow, a mouth, a girth, a stance, or a voice to quiet a girl's fear, right? And they're they're undressing this poor, uh, you know, new bride um, after singing a Greek song that the fox had taught them very badly, um, and, uh, and things don't get much better for uh, for this new wife of the of the kings. Uh, the oh. little that we we see of her, um, yeah, because, uh, because um, then we have chapter two. Yeah. yeah. Before, before we leave chapter one, and I, I hate mm-hmm. to belabor everything um, as I, I do, but the holiness of the smell, mm-hmm. and this, I think this is the first time it really hits mm-hmm. in was the, the priest of Ungit is, is brought in to hear the children all rehearsing the Greek song. And she talks about her, what frightened her about the priest. And it was the holiness of the smell that hung about him, a temple smell of blood mostly pigeon's blood, but he had sacrificed men too, and burnt fat and singed hair and wine and stale incense. It is the unget smell. And just that strong child association, but also that really terrifying thing about the priest and unget and everything about her having a visceral smell to it um, and the smell of of blood and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Well, and she goes on to even say, you know, it says, perhaps I was afraid of his clothes too. all the skins Mm -hmm. they were made of and the dried bladders and the great mask shaped like a bird's head, which hung on his chest. It looked as if there were a bird growing out of his body, which just paints this picture of this very otherworldly figure um, who, you know, you know, he's a man, but to, to little girl Oruol, (laughs) It's, it's just this, yeah, it's just this frightening picture um, of kind of the, and kind of the separateness uh, that she feels Mm -hmm. from that religious side of life. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very alien, even to someone who lives in that culture. Yeah. And and it's meant to be right. I mean, there's, this is why gods of whatever religion live on mountains, right. Mm -hmm. Or, or other inaccessible places. Um, there's this idea of, I mean, the idea of the holy itself, um, Mm -hmm. as being, um, uncanny, right. Um, as, as being something other, uh, than where we as mortals can flourish, uh, in a lot of ways, that's that monstrousness is, is sort of, intentional but also like not necessarily just intentional right there is something about the gods in this um that terrifies Mm -hmm. um despite despite what the fox says right where he wants to reduce the gods kind of to Mm -hmm. virtues that are that are almost not even personified Mm -hmm. Um, the divine nature Mm -hmm. it's it's not like that (laughs) yeah 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 um but uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and we also get the, the good thick veils too. Mm-hmm. And the, the, this is where the, all the young women are veiled. And it's the first time Orwell's um, veil made her understand that she was ugly, but she could be hidden. And kind of the, the power of hiddenness and of covering and hiding, which is obviously a, a theme we're going to get to yes. a lot more as we go on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really glad you brought that up because that absolutely like goes, you know, it's this, this is a theme that's explored consistently throughout. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that absolutely that, that hiddenness of her own face and the way it corresponds to the hiddenness of the, of the holy. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and, and like later he'll start using the term, like he'll call it like the horror of holiness 
it's like it's just full-on terrible and terrifying not just oh this is kind of uncanny it's like i am afraid which i which of course made me think about charles williams in descent into hell (laughs) because i have to tie everything back to charles williams but um he has a phrase in there one of the characters mrs anstruther says that salvation is often a frightening thing a terrible good um that phrase comes up several times in the book a terrible good and even you can think about Lewis's own work with Aslan. There are several points where, in fact, I think in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the children first see Aslan, there's a passage. People who have not been to Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. So just even even in Lewis's own work, this idea of the divine being almost inaccessible, even though in obviously in the Christian narrative, you know, we believe that God came to us and made himself accessible. But I I think sometimes we have a tendency to <laughs> overemphasize that uh, to the exclusion of of that idea of 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 God being the terrible, almost horrifying, if you think about it too much which means you lose some of that. Well, you, you really lose the impact of Christ himself. If you, if you just kind of think of God more in these anthropomorphic terms, like, well, he's just a, mm-hmm. he's an old man sitting up there in the sky and he's, he's kindly, you know, sometimes he gets a little mad, but it's okay. You know, he's mostly okay. Um, <laughs> whereas if you think of, if you think of God in these like just completely alien terms, it, it makes Christ's incarnation even more, um, impactful and powerful. That's one of the themes in this book that I, I really latched mm-hmm. onto, um, especially this time through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think the horrific nature of the gods um, at this point is pretty much all she is experiencing, mm-hmm, right? right? I mean, Narnia and, and Aslan, right. um, and, and even with Maladil, it is it is terrifying, but it is also a felt good, right? right? The right. reason that you're uncomfortable there is because you know you're sinful, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, at least at least partly, and also finite, right? Yes. Um, but Unkit is more like you know to just to go back to the horse and his boy, more like Tash, right? Yes. Uh, he, she's, <laughs> right. She's, yeah. Yes absolutely you know the the most repulsive parts of what we call paganism right Mm -hmm. um demanding human sacrifice Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. having power over crops over Mm -hmm. children um exploiting women and children uh Mm -hmm. as we would see it with the the prostitution in the temple yeah it is yeah yeah terrifying yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, um, I mean, uh, you know, when when I've been to like, uh, and maybe this will get me in trouble. I don't know. Uh, when I when I've been to pagan temples, um, you know, uh, <laughs> we can cut the. No, but this is great. I, 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 did, with Chris. I didn't Story go. To, I didn't go to worship, um, but um, <laughs> but I went as a tourist, uh, and I remember I remember going into these, you know, going into these caves and seeing these images, you know, of these like crazy looking deities, right? These mm-hmm. idols, you know, in 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 China, especially. Um, you know, at the time, like, you know, I just thought, oh, that's demonic, right? Um, <laughs> they worship that, you know, and, mm. uh, and, and it's because it's, it's, it's dark and it's, it's an, it's a different space and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's this dark, holy, monstrous place. I mean, I'm sure there are people there who are quite comfortable around those like blue skinned, uh, you know, many headed, uh, tusked images, but, um, I was not. And, uh, you know, even though I thought it was really interesting too, it's, it's so alien. Um, and even to someone living there, you know, who's, who's been around the template of Anget, right. It's, it's, it's still this alien experience. Mm -hmm. Um, It still very much takes her out of her ordinary, um, experiences, which is what holy places are supposed to do. They're dark places. Okay, so in, in chapter two, uh, the king is angry. Uh, why is the king angry? Because his new bride 
uh, got pregnant and he was very excited about it because he thought finally a prince uh, is coming. And it turns out that was not the case. He got another daughter. And, um, and then on top of that, his new bride died in childbirth. So here he is stuck with three girls now and no sons. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So yeah. he's a, he's a, he's a tad miffed. Well, and his power is at its lowest ebb, right? Because mm. he made this allegiance with the the father of this new bride that actually weakens his kingdom and the people know it and there are all these other things starting to happen um and foreshadowings of just bad times ahead in Gloam. Um, mm-hmm. And a son was supposed to be the first, it was supposed to be the sign of the turnaround and, and that the, the kingdom would be safe. It would fall and be uh, inherited. The succession would continue. And instead we have more uncertainty and can he really rule? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, d- does this remind anyone else of King Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> Of course. Yeah. I mean, I know I know he probably Are we not have... Anglicans? Yeah, yeah. He didn't he didn't have much we we've just been watching, we just watched A Man for All Seasons, which is an awesome movie about Thomas mm. Burton or Thomas mm. Moore. Um <laughs> I was like, wait. Uh, definitely not Thomas Burton. Not Thomas Burton. Not Thomas Burton. Not Thomas Burton. Um Wrong Thomas. But, uh, uh, yeah, um, and, and we also watched the miniseries Wolf Hall, um, and and in both of them, you know, the the whole motivation. I mean, sure, King Henry VIII was, you know, uh, his appetites were a little bit out of control, right, um, to, to say the least. But uh, he, the main thing, the main reason he's divorcing and killing uh, so many wives um, is is because he's just really worried about his legacy as a king right he's 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 scared to death about the succession because at that time it had been unprecedented for a woman to rule uh well and he didn't want civil war to break out right you know yeah yeah. Um, over uh over succession disputes yeah yeah not to say that he wasn't crazy um (laughs) (laughs) but but, uh i think it's pretty good uh yeah um right but there are reasons for the craziness yeah yeah there are reasons yeah yeah it's it's grounded in like practical you know oh well the the pope has allowed other kings in this spot Mm -hmm. to like have annulments he won't let me have my freaking annulment you know Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah but uh that was a direct quote from henry the eighth by the way that's right that's right um Uh, yeah but i i love the king's anger here um Mm -hmm. because the way lewis describes it it's so real and terrible and that that we've seen him rage in in the blustery way and now we get him in the pale rage Mm -hmm. um when he was pale he was deadly wine he said not very loud and that too was a bad sign the other slaves pushed forward a boy who was rather a favorite as slaves do when they are afraid the child, white as his master, and in all his finery, my father dressed the younger slaves very fine, came running with the flagon and the royal cup, slipped in the blood, reeled, and dropped both. Quick as thought, my father whipped out his dagger and stabbed him in the side. The boy dropped dead in the blood and wine, and the fall of his body sent the flagon rolling over and over. It made a great noise in that silence. I hadn't thought till then that the floor of the hall was so uneven. I have repaved it since. The very understated action, and I meant, like the first time I read it, I had to reread it a few times to be like, did he just murder that boy for falling? That wasn't his fault. And oh my God, like that just, this is terrifying. And seeing the real threat of this man's totally irrational rage and his power. I think it's very effective. And and to also see Orwell's own dispassionate description of it, right? Like I hadn't thought till then that the floor of the hall was so uneven and I've repaved it. Um, like that's, that's important to note here. Um, it's, I think, very, very well done. I think um, too, what's interesting is to see that rage contrasted immediately with the priest of Unget, mm. um, who... Mm. Or- 
Orual says the priest was not in the least afraid of the king, even though the king is like in his face <laughs> almost at this point. And he says, what have you to say for Unget now? You had better recover what she owes me. When are you going to pay me for my good cattle? Then after a pause, tell me, prophet, what would happen if I hammered Unget into powder and tied you between the hammers and the stone? And the priest is just unfazed by this, um, which is kind of a theme also that keeps recurring um, that for all of this, all of this monarchical earthly power, the priest mm. is just completely unfazed because he is so uh, secure in his belief in Unget and that Unget will take care of whatever Unget needs to take care of. Um, two, I was thinking, um, I just, I thought it was interesting that the king basically demanded that the he he's thinking that the priest needs or unget really needs to repay him for all of the cattle that he has sacrificed to her and i was thinking i, I don't know if he understands the definition of sacrifice because mm. he it's it's more he's thinking oh well of course like i i gave unget my cattle so therefore i expect something in return when that's not actually uh, the true definition of sacrifice and so I wonder if there's that also at play here that uh, the king, like like many of us, uh, can often not be true worshipers of the gods or unget or not or, or say we're being sacrificial when we're actually not in the least. We're actually expecting something in return. It's like if you since we just went through Christmas, it's like <laughs> if you give somebody a Christmas gift with the expectation, well, you, you have to give me something in return when that's not what a gift is. <laughs> and so I just that's that's interesting to me that the. That's how the king, that's that those are the assumptions the king is operating under at mm -hmm. this point. And even in this culture, that's wrong because Unget is ultimately not going to honor any of those sacrifices. Yeah, although should sacrifice be altruistic? Is is the point the altruism and the thing that you give up, or is the point like the faith that despite the fact that you're giving up this thing, the God will come through for you in some way, whether it's granting you an heir or something else? Yeah. So like later on, not in this chapter, but I think in chapter five, um, when things get even worse and mm -hmm. we have, again, the confrontation between the priest and the king. Mm -hmm. Um, the king says, I've been a God-fearing man all my mm. life. And right. I just remember being like, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you haven't. You God-fearing man. <laughs> but but in his in his mind, yeah. he had been. And the, the, the dialogue with the priest, the priest is saying, you know, what's what's wrong? Why have the crops failed? What's going on? Like something has to account for the troubles we have. Unget is not pleased because mm. there is a reason and we yeah. have to find out the reason and deal with the reason. Yeah. Um, which does seem to point to a relationship that there are good things that come to you when you are good and in yeah. the right, like standing with Unget and then the really crappy things happen because you messed up or someone messed up and we've got to find them and we've got to make that sort of propitiation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if, 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 again, if this was like Christianity, I'd, I'd yeah. be like, yeah, you're totally right. You're like, totally you know, right. He's, you, you he's don't misunderstanding like, it. Yeah. You, you don't like, you know, put stuff in the offering plate right. thinking that God's going to give you a son. Right. Or something like that. Right. Uh, like, all these years I've well, tied. I have I have tied uh, every month, but, um, where is my son? You know, plus, plus all the offerings, you know, uh, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, this is, this is, uh, and, I guess, and, well, and I, I guess like that's, that's what's so great about this book is that mm -hmm. because of that subtlety, you're, it's, it's not on the nose. So you're not like, Oh, well, clearly Unget equals Christian God, you know, right, or whatever, right. because she doesn't, but there are, these like underlying themes that yeah. that are you know influenced by christianity mm -hmm. or that point towards christianity yeah. and so in discussing the book it's it's much harder to do than with something like narnia or even mm -hmm. with the space trilogy yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah which makes very, it fun it's a very kind of like transactional religion yeah. right yeah. like right. If, if you live in the real world and your head is on straight you pay to unget what's do unget and then you mm -hmm. live the rest of your life untroubled by unget right yeah and then there are a few people who sort of break that pattern, right? And the priest is one of them, 
um, mm. because the priest clearly is devoted to Ungat. It's not just to his own power. He's happy to lose his life for Ungat. He's happy mm-hmm. to be a martyr. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, in this in this chapter, we first meet the other main one um, because um, Oriol meets her youngest sister for the first time, um, her um, her her new baby sister. And this is when she says, um, this was the beginning of all my joys. Is that what she says? Uh, Yes. And so in one hour, I passed out of the worst anguish I'd yet suffered into the beginning of all my joys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The worst anguish being uh, the the king threatens to um, enslave the fox to send him to the mines yeah. that he would work about a week and then die. Mm-hmm. Um, because what good is having a tutor when there are no sons and no princes and he's fed and housed and clothed this Greekling for, for no reason. Um, and the, of course the Fox's response is to seek escape. Um, and he has a, a plan for suicide. And I, this is where these competing sort of, viewpoints between the fox and orwell's more latent barbarianism or paganism or whatever you want to call it um maybe we should call it barbarian because he the fox does and when he tells her of his plan and she starts crying he says have i not told you often that to depart from life of a man's own will when there's good reason is one of the things that are according to nature we are to look on life as they say that those who go that way lie wallowing in filth down there in the land of the dead. Hush, hush. Are you also still a barbarian? At death, we are resolved into our elements. Shall I accept birth and cavil at, oh, I know, I know, but grandfather, do you really in your heart believe nothing of what is said about the gods and those below? But you do, you do, you are trembling. That's my disgrace. The body is shaking. I needn't let it shake the God within me. And I, I love that dialogue for the, the fox himself is not entirely sure, mm-hmm. um, but he is committed to his philosophy and he is going to go down believing it even as he instinctively uh, rebels and has fear of suicide and fear of what might be in the afterlife. Yeah. And, and, and you also have this moment where he's, uh, you know, when he first sees Psyche as well, right, who in, in the Glomish tongue is named Istra, right? Um, uh, now by all the gods, he whispered, old fool that I am, I could almost believe that there really is divine blood in your family. <laughs> Helen herself, new hatched, must have looked so. Um, so this sort of awe at the beauty of this human right mm. who is who is um so godlike uh you know she's oriol is so happy to do everything that she can for psyche um you know and, and basically be a second mother to her um and mm-hmm. and she and psyche and the fox um now have their best times really the time that oriol remembers being happiest in her entire life uh, before or or since uh she says the years doubtless went round then as now but in my memory, it seems to have been all springs and summers. I think the almonds and the cherries blossomed earlier in those years, and the blossoms lasted longer. How they hung on in such winds, I don't know, for I see the boughs always rocking and dancing against blue and white skies and their shadows flowing water-like all over the hills and valleys of Psyche's body. I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother. I wanted to be a boy so that she could be in love with me. I wanted her to be my full sister instead of my half-sister. I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich. The fox was so trusted by now because the father forgot that he was going to, you know, send him to the mines, um, that when my father did not need him, he was allowed to take us anywhere, even miles from the palace. We were often out all day in summer on the hilltop to the southwest, looking down on all gloom and across to the gray mountain. We stared our eyes out on that jagged ridge till we knew every tooth and notch of it, for none of us had ever gone out there or seen what was on the other side. Psyche, almost from the beginning, for she was a very quick thinking child, was half in love with the mountain. She made herself stories about it. When I'm big, she said, I will be a great, 
great queen married to the greatest king of all, and he will build me a castle of gold and amber up there on the very top. The fox clapped his hands and sang, prettier than Andromeda, prettier than Helen, prettier than Aphrodite herself. Speak words of better omen, grandfather, I said, though I knew he would scold and mock me for saying it. For at his words, though on that summer day the rocks were too hot to touch, it was as if a soft, cold hand had been laid on my left side, and I shivered. Bye-bye, said the fox. It is your words that are ill-omened. The divine nature is not like that. It has no envy. But whatever he said, I knew it is not good to talk that way about Ungit. So that's the end of chapter two. Um, yeah, last, last thoughts so far about, um, you know, this chapter. So I have a lot of conflict foreshadowed. The I wanted to paragraph, I wanted to be a wife so that I wanted to be a boy so that I wanted her to be my full sister. Like the, the desire also has that ownership element where it gets to the end and I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich, but it would be she owed me because I did it too, right? Like it's that um, kind of the the terror of affectionate love, of that familial love kind of overgrown into something um, tyrannical uh, that desires dominion uh, in, in possessing, which is, um, I, I think, not at all clear to Orwell at this point, but um, should be growing clearer to us as we read. What, what this book does an amazing job of through, through the narrator's honesty um, right. is, uh, which, which is, which is a credit, you know, to her um, is, is highlighting how natural when we love, how natural it is to want to own. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to the point that like, I, I don't, really want to be loved by the people I love the most in a sense that's not proprietary, right? I, I mean, there, there is something just natural and like in its own way good about that, but, but there's also something always potentially um, dangerous, idolatrous, dark um, about mm-hmm. that as well. Yeah, speaking of uh, dangerous and dark, Psyche's half in love with the mountain and the mountain being, of course, the the other, it's the home of the god of the gray mountain, but it's also this, as we were talking about earlier, um, the other place. Um, and it reminds me, they're, you know, children who say they want to go to heaven, and sometimes it can be kind of creepy. <laughs> and I, I think that um, that sort of thrill of, dear God, what does this mean that this child is like so fixed on this other place and this not home and this um, un- uncanny, holy, scary thing. Um, it's also very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have the conflict of the whole book right there in those two paragraphs, um, right. you know, already the, the, Oriol wanting to be everything to Psyche and Psyche wanting to be away, escape yeah. and go far yeah. away. Yeah. Um, and, and, and she, cause she has this longing in her heart um, for, for this mountain. Yeah. All right. Well, um, any last thoughts, words, comments? Not right now. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> This is this is the end of the first Inklings Variety Hour, probably of many. <laughs> probably <laughs> until we have bases. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so I hope you enjoyed it, and feel free to leave any feedback, comments um, that you'd like to. Um, until next time, read lots of books. <laughs> <laughs> We gotta come up with a better tagline than that.
I think instead of having a regular tagline, just lead, leading with like, um, just a, a totally out of context, like, the divine nature is not like that. <laughs> or just something, you know. Yeah. Until next time, walk with Ungit. <laughs> what? No. No. <laughs> I'm terrified. I'm t- <laughs> don't do human sacrifices. Just don't do it, guys. Just don't do it. <laughs> It's no. never worth it. Listen, the Inklings for Eddie Hour does not endorse human sacrifice or or temple prostitution. No. Yeah. Now clearly they work. We're not disputing that, <laughs> but it's just not good it's for not you. Not good for you. Oh Think gosh. about the monkey's paw. <laughs> oh um, yes, the worst. Oh my gosh. All blessed encounter, full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan. With here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams stand.